0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I trust that uh, if you came here hoping to hear the end of Revelation, you're going to be disappointed. We are going to wait on the Son of Man's coming a little bit longer, but we're going to go to a book of the Bible that was penned by the same human author. A little bit of continuity there. So go to the Gospel of John and join me in chapter 12, if you would. Chapter 12. This is one of my favorite texts in all of the New Testament, and it has been formative in my own Walk with the Lord, understanding what He wants for me, and I trust that it'll be a real blessing to you. Jesus' invitation of discipleship is not a casual one. The rewards of following Jesus are weighty, but the demands are also weighty. This was the heartbeat that drove one German theologian to some amazing conclusions at a very important time in history. And no, I'm not talking about Martin Luther skip ahead about four centuries this man was a prolific writer preacher teacher and he actually organized an unsanctioned Protestant seminary in defiance of the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s so his ministry efforts ended up serving as sort of a freedom outpost for men of the German confessing church who sought ministry training in the 1930s he was an outspoken defender of Christian liberties and he was an outspoken critic of the rising Third Reich with Hitler at the helm. In fact, historians have even debated, catch this, about his level of involvement in an undercover plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. In the spring of 1945, as Germany began to suffer critical losses, this man was tried and swiftly accused of conspiri- conspiring to an anti-Hitler plot some 18 months prior. He was hanged outside of a concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany. So obviously this man was a daring political activist, and he continues to be a polarizing figure in church history. But he was passionate about many good things, and this is at the heart of what I want to preach to us about today, the cost and the reward of Christian discipleship. First, the man I'm talking about is none other than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you are familiar with that, that name. His most famous work is The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a committed Lutheran with a number of doctrines that would cause me some disagreement and I hope you too but of course just because we disagree with somebody doesn't mean we can't learn from them otherwise we'd probably never learn anything from anybody so I want to learn one of his well-known passages in order to introduce our text this is what he says and there is the concentration camp in Flossenburg where he was executed here's what he said in the cost of discipleship cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline communion without confession absolution without personal confession cheap grace is grace without discipleship grace without the cross grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ now catch this this is a paradox it is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives man the only true life in other words Jesus invitation is far more demanding than we tend to think it really is but Jesus's promise of reward and blessing are also far more profound far more satisfying than we often think both of those are true let's read our text John chapter 12 and I'm going to be in verse 23 And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, Jesus' call to discipleship is simultaneously very demanding, but also highly rewarding. And it's important to recognize both sides of that formula. You can't ignore one without the other. It's interesting to me that the gospel writers, all through their three and four accounts, give the same value to this call. And here's our theme. Disciples of Jesus must embrace death in order to experience life. Let me review some of these in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How about the Gospel of Mark? Listen to this. And calling the crowd to him, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke 14. If anyone would come after me and does not hate his own father or mother, wife, and children, Yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, church, there is a self denial, a death, that actually springs up to life in Jesus Christ when we follow him. So, as believers, we are both called to die and to live. In John's text here today, believers are called upon to hate or to lose their life, same idea, and keep it unto eternity. Does that make sense? I want to help clarify and inspire us in that seeming paradox today. So when we get to John chapter 12, verse 24, this whole truth is put in really crystal clear terms because Jesus gives us an illustration. What is the illustration in verse number 24? Can you see it? It's something we know of just intuitively. It's the illustration of nature. He gives us a biological illustration. Let me read verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So here's the illustration, and that's our first point. The illustration in nature describes death leading to life. You and I have witnessed this in in countless different ways, haven't we, in nature. An acorn that's on top of an oak tree is just as alive as the tree itself. Right? That acorn is connected to the tree. There are nutrients coming up through the midrib through the venation pattern and they support that acorn. But that acorn has two choices. Either it can protect itself, stay on the vine, and seemingly live for a little while longer, but in that case, the single seed inside will remain trapped and dormant. Or it can fall to the ground and it can die. And then it can experience miraculous change. It can shed its old casing. It can allow water and sunlight to penetrate that and the seed, the little embryo, germinates. And this little thing becomes a plant, a big oak tree that gives you problems because it drops acorns on your yard. This is Christ saying, he who seeks to save his life will will lose it. But the one that loses his life will keep it. This is death leading to life, and we see it in nature. If you're like me, this imagery sometimes strikes me as shocking, like kind of harsh It's radical language but I think today that if we struggle one of the things we have not done is to realize how valuable that reward of discipleship actually is keeping our life to eternity For example this is a little bit silly but if that acorn would be willing to see what it could become one day a mighty oak tree in your backyard it would gladly drop to the earth die, germinate, and grow So catch this important point church. God is not opposed to our ultimate self-interest. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, if it dies, then it will have life. He wouldn't have said that if it wasn't important. God is actually incentivizing us by the promise of life, and sometimes because we're short-sighted, we miss that. What God demands is a redefinition of life, a total replacement. We need to live in such a way that we refuse to continue living in and for ourselves. And I put this up on the screen. Here's God's redefinition. He will be the unrivaled center of our self-interest. To follow Jesus is the pattern of renouncing all self-determination and pursuing God. That is death leading to life, and we see that in nature. I'd like to give you another illustration, if this helps you. Social studies have shown that certain street drugs have actually hit an all-time high, and they hit an all-time high in 2020, for obvious reasons, sadly especially the powerful narcotic of fentanyl, which is a a scary drug. Experts actually label this as 100 times more powerful than morphine. Those of you that are familiar with morphine, that's astounding. (laughs) So, would a hallucinating, brain-damaged, out-of-control addict, would he see that drug as life or death? To him, that drug would feel like life. He says, I need that in order to live. But his behavior, if it goes unchecked, will lead to death. That very thing is death in the making. Would he see the freedom from his habit, his healing, his freedom from drugs, as life or death? He would look at that as death. But in fact, that sacrifice would lead to life. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. To continue to self-destruct will lead to death. So if this helps you, this principle, this paradox, I want to state it in a few ways that might give you some help. These are conditional statements, and I have them up on the screen if it will aid you. Unless a life gives itself up, it will never reproduce. Unless a seed dies, it will never yield any fruit. And unless a person rightly sacrifices himself, he will stay empty and alone forever. But, and here's the flip side of that condition, when a life spends itself, then it reproduces, when a seed dies, then it germinates and yields a fruitful harvest. When a person, when you, or when I, rightly sacrifice ourselves, we actually discover what real and true living is. So Christ's illustration of biology helps us get that first point, the illustration of death leading to life. And it's an illustration we all get. We're going to look at two more levels of this truth. How this principle is proven in the gospel and how this principle demands us to follow it today. So, death leading to life is proven in the gospel. Would you look back up just one verse, 23? I want you to read this with me. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This statement is actually made right smack dab in the middle of Christ's Passion Week. Or I should say at the outset, the beginning of Christ's Passion Week. We know from the full account of John that Christ is journeying to the cross. We know that because we've read the Gospels. Now, whether the onlookers would have realized that or not, that's a different story. But we know that the ultimate plan is the cross for Jesus Christ. And this book has built the anticipation. This phrase, the hour has come, is actually a fulfillment of many different statements from Jesus. Repeatedly, he has said, the hour has not yet come. He says this in 2-4, 7 So when Jesus finally says the hour has come, you know, it's time to pay attention because the book has been building to this climax, right? And we know what it is. It's the presentation of Jesus' life on the cross and his consummate resurrection. It's the heart of the gospel. So this is his hour. It's the Passion Week. This is happening. But it's also his hour to be glorified. See the back end of verse 24 the son of man will be glorified how, how is Jesus glorified in the gospel well there's a couple different ways to understand that here are two that I think John would have us understand the glorification of Jesus is his complete and unswerving obedience to the father's plan he accomplishes his mission he doesn't diverge to another path he follows through Jesus is the duty bound love motivated servant who is loyally following his father In this, he is glorified when he dies. Also, the glorification, or think the proclamation, of God's character is in the gospel. How can he be fully just and fully merciful? We see this through the cross and resurrection. This is how the Lord is glorified through Jesus' death. The facts of the gospel glorify his character. So Jesus' hour is upon us. So onlookers here in chapter 12 would have been in high anticipation. The hour has come, right? And readers, we should be too. So what sparks this climax? It's actually an interesting social thing right before this paragraph. So I want you to look up, if you would, to verse 19, and we're going to read through 22. See if you can get into the shoes of a first century uh, onlooker here. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. That's Jesus. They're worried. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And then Jesus answers and goes into our text. Remember that in the book of John, This whole journey of Jesus is proving what John said at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 and 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. John is proving Jesus to be that Word. And he does it in part through a list of seven miracles, seven wonders. Let me give them to you here. The water turned into wine back in chapter 2. The cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. Jesus healed the royal official's son. He healed the man who was paralyzed. He fed the 5,000, and then he restored sight to a blind man in chapter 9. Now we're at chapter 12, but in chapter 11 is his greatest miracle, his culmination, his seventh and final sign. What is that sign? John chapter 11. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is John's anticipation. This is it. I think the seventh sign is saved for last because it sparks the biggest controversy. At this point, the religious leaders know that Jesus has gained a following, and they see the threat to this. What you will see is that Jesus used all of those signs as an opportunity to teach, and the signs combined with Jesus' teaching show him to be the Son of God. I mean, it's hard enough to turn water into wine, chapter 2. But who else but God in chapter 11 Can literally bring the dead back to life So of course this causes a disturbance People are talking Wouldn't you be? A funeral And then the guy raises back to life Of course So people like the Greeks are very curious At the, at the middle of chapter 12 So how does Jesus' death In the gospel Which is our second point How does his hour of glorification Lead to more life How does that happen? Well, you and I know this because the New Testament teaches us it's through substitution. It's the replacement of our penalty upon Christ. But in John chapter 11, we're actually given a foreshadowing of that truth. I want you to look at verses 47 through 52, chapter 11. And this is actually an ironic statement. The person saying this doesn't know what he's talking about. You'll see what I mean. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go, like this, all men will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away our nation. They're worried. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and the whole nation doesn't perish. He did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest... He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And catch this. And not only for the nation, but that he might gather together into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, step back for a minute. Caiaphas says this. He says, the Romans are agitated that there's so much unrest. They're going to come, and we're going to be under threat of them wiping us out. He says, if Jesus were to die, the whole nation could be saved. What he's doing is actually foreshadowing the Gospels. Because of Jesus' death, God can gather millions of sinners to himself and be saved. Jesus' death leads to life, and it leads to life in millions of souls. If you're here and you're saved, you've been converted, Jesus' life and his death have given you life. So, this is presented ironically in chapter 11. Jesus' refusal to protect his own life leads to an amazingly fruitful yield of souls. Jesus' sacrifice leads to life. He is that corn of wheat that drops to the earth, dies, and springs up into new life. I want to make a little application here. and We're we're kind of working back from John 11 to John 12. I I know that. But I think the context is important. Right between those two sections we just looked at, and you don't have to look down, is Mary's gift of love to Jesus. Mary, the brother of Lazarus, who was just raised from the dead, She recognized Christ's unmatched power at the beginning of chapter 12. You can read it some other time. And she gives him extravagant love and worship. She offers him this this box of ointment, this perfume that is so valuable, but she gives it to Jesus. Her her gift is extravagant. And because we recognize that Jesus' death leads to life, we ought to worship him too and worship him extravagantly like Mary. Well, death leading to life is not only illustrated in nature and proven in the gospel like we've just seen but it's also commanded for Christians today who want to follow Jesus and this is really where the core of our message is so verses 25 and 26 let me read these again he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it until life eternal if anyone serves me he must follow me and where I am there my servant will be also If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, if Christians who follow Jesus are supposed to both deny their life, to lose it, and they're also called to gain their life, which life is to be denied and which life is to be gained? That's like a question I've always had when I read this text. Well, Paul actually, before this one, Paul actually gives something of an answer in Romans chapter 7. Remember, in Romans 6, we learn about our life being hid with Christ. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. And Romans chapter 7 goes on to teach that there is a tension. There's, as one author put it, a sacred schizophrenia in the heart of the Christian, okay? One part of you wants to follow the flesh. But the new man that you have been given by the Spirit is dedicated to Jesus. Paul teaches that Jesus' death becomes our death our identity is hidden with Christ but the remaining sinfulness that we find will not be silent our remaining sinfulness will not go away without a fight listen to Paul's words here in Romans 7 for i do not understand my own actions for i do i'm sorry for i do not what i do want to do but i do the very thing that i hate now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that is good so now it is no longer i who does it What sin that dwells in me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. Paul was fighting with this tension too of dying to self and living to the Spirit. This is something the New Testament fleshes out for us. It's easy to sometimes think that we as believers are kind of equally divided, good and bad, and it's kind of just like a coin toss who's going to win out? but I don't think that's the picture the New Testament gives I believe 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says if any man be in Christ he is a new creature in other words your inner man has been remade completely instead what happens is our remaining sinfulness is fighting against that new man and this is the part that I highlighted and look again at Romans 7 so it is no longer I who sin but it's sin that dwells in me in other words you the new you is somebody brand new It's not that you're fighting equally between two parts. You're not a dualistic creature. All things have passed away. All things are become new. We need to look to the Spirit and look to Jesus for that life. We are fighting an already won battle, aren't we? Through the Gospel. The flesh in our hearts will still fight against the rule of Christ. But the flesh has been conquered. The flesh has been dealt a death blow. So we live, like Colossians 3 says, by putting to death those remaining sinful members of our body. Put those to death and pursue Jesus. The believer is a brand new person. And though we're fighting, though we're putting things to death, Christ has made us new. And we'll fully realize that at the resurrection, when we're given brand new bodies, which is so exciting. We live by putting to death the sinful roots in our life. Therefore, the Christian walk is a walk of both dying and living. And we have to get both of those. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If Christians are supposed to both live and to die, Paul helps us understand how that works. 2 Corinthians 2, and let's read verse 14. Here's what Paul says. He's coming off of a passage where he was discussing trial and hardship. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. But thanks be to God who leads us in triumph. That entire clause who always leads us in triumph or who always leads us in triumphal procession, that's one single verbal in the Greek. And there's some exegetical questions about how do we translate that? But most commentators say that this is not the triumph of victory. This is actually the triumph of defeat. We are the captives that Jesus Christ is leading. He has overcome our sinfulness. Let me read to you a helpful passage. How are we being led? Well, this was not used to reference those who participated in a procession as members of the army. Paul does not represent himself as a garlanded, victorious general, nor as a foot soldier in God's army who shares in the glory of Christ's triumph. Quite the opposite. He portrays himself as the conquered prisoner being put on display. He was previously God's enemy, but God had overcome his rebellion. And God has overcome the rebellion of every sinful heart if you've been converted. And now God leads us, in a sense, to death to display his majesty and power. God has overcome and dealt a fatal blow to our flesh. That's an amazing point. Life as Christians is life something of a death march. God conquers our rebellion. He bestows new life. Disciples of Jesus must embrace death in order to experience life. That is still the pattern for you and for me today. In John 12, as we we saw, that's proven, I should say it's described by an illustration, it's proven by Christ as he goes to his death. And it's commanded of you. It's commanded of me. Will we go to our death? We might not understand the earnestness of this call if we were to look around at just Christians today, especially here in the South, where everybody and their brother is a Christian. Does it seem like people are dying to themselves, living to Christ? Are they earnest about putting to death those members of sin? Are we earnest about that? Are we willing to follow Christ in a death march, putting to death our old man, and experience the triumph of a new life? It's a good question for us. Far too often, Jesus is just tacked on to another list of personal identifications. Like, yeah, I'm a Tar Heels fan. I'm not, but I don't know why I picked that. Some of you Tar Heels fans. I'm a Tar Heels fan. I love gardening. Uh, You know, we travel to such and such in the summer. Oh, and I'm a Christian. That's not the picture Jesus gives for us in John 12. We are called to go to our death in order to follow him and to experience the reward of new life. God wants us to have that life. The cost of discipleship is death to our flesh. That's a high cost. But the reward is life in the Spirit. Bonhoeffer, where we started, continues to to help me understand this. He inspires this kind of faithfulness. Here's what he said in that same book, Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, the disciples of Jesus must, at one level, embrace death in order to experience life. We must do that. So are we committed today to continuing in that project, that death march to ourselves? Marching that march of, of self-dependence, self-forgetfulness, self-sacrifice? I want to finish with what Paul said. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. If you've been saved, converted here today, you have experienced a death. And we need to follow through on putting our sinful members to death and experiencing life in the Spirit. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will never bear fruit. But whoever loses their life in this temporal world will gain it to eternity. I trust that that is our commitment today. It's a high cost, but it's also a very high reward. Let's go ahead and play.